Lord, our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you have made yourself known, that you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, who is the living Word, and through your Word, the written Word. And Lord, I do pray that you'd speak to us. I pray that you would open up our eyes, that you would allow us to see. And Lord, you know everybody in this room, you know what they're thinking, you know how they're feeling, you know their struggles, you know their sin that has enslaved them, that is overwhelming them. You know their fears and their insecurities. And Lord, my prayer is, can you meet us where we are? Can you expose the truth to us and expose the lies that we have a tendency to believe? Can you help us to look to you as our eyes are being opened by you and in humility trust you? So come, Lord, and speak. I pray that you would allow my mind to think clearly and my lips to proclaim freely these wonderful truths that we find in the Gospel of John. So come, Lord, and speak, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series through the Gospel of John, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to John, uh, John chapter 9. Um, and I have to admit to you that the more I study the book of John, the more I'm overwhelmed by the book of John and wondering why in the world did I pick the book of John. Um, seriously, the, the more you study it, the more dense it is, and it's, it's overwhelming. And there's, there's even some truths that, to be quite honest, I don't really like, and yet it's in the Word. And so what do we do with truths we don't like in the Word? We just throw it out and just move on. No, I'm just kidding. We, we deal with it. We, we look at it and, and see for what it says because it is God's Word. And so what John has been doing in his Gospels is showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And really, his Gospel is one big invitation to come to the Son, to believe in Him so that you may have life that can only be found in Jesus, who is the Messiah and the Son of God. Now, now two weeks ago, uh, we, we saw the miracle of how Jesus opened up the eyes of the man who was born blind. And, and really what we saw in this miracle, really better yet, a sign, is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Now, this man who had been healed, he was blind, he was living in darkness his entire life, and all of a sudden Jesus opened up his eyes, and you would think that this miracle would be met with awe and amazement and rejoicing, and yet when this miracle was brought before the religious authorities, it was met with skepticism. 
And as these religious authorities were engaging in a conversation with this man who was healed and even with his parents, we see that this entire conversation revolves more around the identity of Jesus and who is Jesus rather than really on what this miracle meant. And so the question that the the religious leaders really had and what what they really were wrestling with is Jesus from God or is Jesus a sinner? And when this man that was healed was confronted by this question, he wasn't sure how to answer it, but the only thing he knew for a fact, and this is what he said to him, that I was once blind, but now I see. So let's look in our text and see what is going on in John 9, verse 13. It says this. They brought the man, obviously that's the neighbors, that's the crowd. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked them again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. He washed and I can see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He is a prophet, he said. So let's stop here and just kind of unpack this for a little bit. Obviously, the man's neighbor, the family, the community, everybody was amazed that this man who was born blind could now see. And because they were so amazed, they decided to to take this man to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders. Now, I don't think they did it out of envy. They didn't do it because they were angry, but rather they were so amazed and so overwhelmed, they wanted to hear from their religious authorities. And so out of great joy, they decide to take this man to their local religious leaders. And in a sense, they come to this question is, look at this wonderful miracle. Look what God has done. We would love to know what you say what does all of this mean what is the significance because clearly this is a miracle we've never seen we've never heard of this is something entirely new so religious leaders tell us what does all of this mean But John kind of gives us a little fine note here and he explains to us of when this miracle took place And this miracle took place on the Sabbath. And what we find out in our text is just as the crowd was divided over Jesus, some thought he was a deceiver, some thought he was a prophet like Elijah, some thought that he was the Messiah. Now we see these religious leaders, even they are now divided on their opinion of Jesus. And so in our text, we see kind of two groups. The first group, they focus more on the how and when Jesus performed the miracle. And so their conclusion is, since Jesus performed the miracle on the Sabbath by taking mud, forming it a pax, and put it on the man's eyes, and then telling the man to go wash himself in the pool of Shalom, their conclusion was he is a lawbreaker. And because he is a lawbreaker, he is not from God, and thus they paint him as a sinner. That's the first group. The second group, on the other hand, are saying, well, wait a minute here. 
And they find it hard to believe that Jesus is a sinner because only the power of God can take a man who was born blind and open up his eyes. And since Jesus was the agent of God's power, the one who God used to perform the miracle, they're saying, we know that God doesn't use sinners, thus he cannot be a sinner, but somehow he must be from God. And so these religious leaders are now divided in their opinion of Jesus. And yet, here's the irony before we move on. The irony is that both groups, in a sense, fall short in their understanding of Jesus. So, so for example, the first group, the first group, I think, probably provides the best argument. God does not use lawbreakers. God does not use sinners to display his power to perform miracles. But here's the problem. If their argument is correct and God does not use people uh, as sinners to display his powerful agent in healing and performing miracles, then that means their, 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 their heart the hardest issue that they have to deal with is that, they, that either their interpretation is wrong and Jesus is from God or their interpretation of the law is correct and Jesus is not from God. So in other words, what their biggest problem is in order for them to admit that Jesus is from God now they have to admit that their interpretation of the law, especially around the Sabbath, is wrong because we know that Jesus did not come to abolish the law but rather to fulfill the law. Jesus did not break the law but rather Jesus upheld the law, something we could not do. In other words, what the gospel teaches us about Jesus is he lived a life we could not live. He perfectly obeyed the law of God so that he could exchange his life for our life because if Jesus broke the law he could not exchange his perfect life for our imperfect life because his life would not be perfect and so the first the first group of these Pharisees who believed that Jesus was a sinner at the heart of the issue they were correct that God doesn't use sinners to perform miracles in a sense but for them to admit it, then they have to almost admit that their interpretation of the law was incorrect. The second group, their argument is the most flawed because the second group, in a sense, says just because a miracle is performed, that means that they are from God. But what, if you think about the Bible, the Bible doesn't really teach that. Think about that flawed argument. So, for example, um, just because you perform a miracle, you're from God is a flawed argument. So think about um, in, in the Bible um, Moses. So when Moses threw down his staff, what happened to his staff? It turned into a snake. And what did the Egyptian magicians do? They did the same thing. So on that, that reasonable argument, does that mean the Egyptian magicians are from God? No, they're not from God. So in a sense, both groups are wrong, and there's so much irony in all of this. But what John is really trying to show us is that Jesus is from God in a way that is far more profound than both groups could ever realize. 
and what this division caused among these religious leaders, it prompted them to now interrogate the man who was healed. And even though this man who was healed was not an expert in the law, he wasn't fully educated in all of the scripture, they in a sense forced him to take sides by asking him this question, what do you say about the one who opened up your eyes? Like, you kind of have to pick. And what he does is, unlike the man who was paralyzed in John chapter 5, this man instantly takes the side of Jesus, and he confesses that Jesus is a prophet. In a sense, he knows that the work of God was done in his life, and therefore the human agent must be an extraordinary individual, a prophet, someone who is sent by God to speak God's word. Now, as we've kind of zoomed in and see the division among these religious leaders and see the irony in there and their false view of Jesus, what we have to do in order to understand the gospel of John, we got to zoom in and zoom out constantly. That's why I'm saying I regret preaching the book because it's so hard. So we've zoomed in and see what's happening, this division that's forming, but now let's zoom out because here's what's happening in the gospel of John. What John is trying to show us is that this healed man, his eyes are beginning to open wider and wider and he's beginning to see more clearly. So in a sense, he doesn't know everything there is to know about Jesus. All he knows is that Jesus opened up his eyes and all he knows is that Jesus is somehow sent by God. Does he know everything there is to know about Jesus? No, not yet. But his eyes are slowly but surely opening up. But as his eyes are opening up, the eyes of the religious leaders are slowly but surely closing down as they are filled with a mist of pride that's closing their eyes. So now these religious leaders, they face a serious dilemma. Since they are divided over the facts, one group says that he's a sinner, another group say he cannot be a sinner, he must be from God, they're hoping that they would discover that there might be an inconsistency, there might be a mistake that will resolve this dilemma. Maybe this man was not born blind. Maybe this identity of this man that was healed was somehow mistaken. And who would know the facts of all of this? Maybe his parents would, because clearly his parents would be able to detest, to, uh, to testify whether this man was born blind, whether this really is his son. So, so let's see what happens in verse 18 as they call the parents of this man that was healed. Verse 18 says this, The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. And this is why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So 
right what we notice of off the bat is notice that these parents were uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable with the religious questions in their line of attack. They were prepared to affirm the first question that this is our son and indeed he was born blind. But they were uncomfortable with the last question of who healed him. And I don't think they did not know the answer. I think they were unwilling to give the answer because clearly their son must have told them what has taken place. But the reason why they were unwilling to say who healed him because they were afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue. And so in response, because of their fear, they refer, defer to their son and say, he is of age. In other words, what they mean by that, he is old enough to bear legal testimony himself. We don't, in a sense, want to get involved. And so you ask him yourself. He can speak for his own. And so now the religious leaders find themselves in a serious conundrum. They're still divided over their opinion with Jesus and their interrogation with the healed man's parents did not reveal any mistakes or any consistency. So they go back to the healed man and now they start to put some pressure on him. Look at verse 24. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether or not he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. And so what these religious authorities are doing is they've already made up their mind with their opinion to Jesus. They don't want to hear truth, but what they're doing is now they're putting pressure on this man who was healed to to proclaim the truth, but not the actual truth, but rather the truth that they want to hear. So when they say, give glory to God, they're not saying, hey, praise the Lord for all the work he's done in your life, but rather they're saying, you better own up before God the truth. Because if you continue lying, God is going to judge you. And so they're putting pressure on him. And what truth do they want him to admit? Not the real truth, but rather their truth. The truth, their truth, that Jesus is indeed a sinner. And the healed man, he responds and he professes no competence of making a judgment of who Jesus is at least in this part of the discussion, he is prepared to kind of leave that question to the experts. But what he says is one thing I do know. I was blind, but now I can see. Like, what a profound witness. What a profound testimony. In other words, what what this man is saying is, Again, I don't know everything there is about this person. I know more or less maybe where he's from, but I don't fully know who he is. All I know is what he has done in my life. I was blind, but now I can see. And again, what is John doing? 
what is John showing us? He's telling us, hey, zoom out a little bit and see what's happening here. Slowly but surely, the eyes of the blind man, his spiritual eyes, he's starting to see. He's starting to see more clearly of who Jesus is. And as he is beginning to see more clearly, these religious leaders, their eyes are being shut slowly but surely as they're being blinded by this mist of pride, as they are unwilling to admit the truth. Because for them to admit the truth that Jesus is from God is for them to admit they are wrong in their interpretation of the law. And really what what John is showing us in a sense is that these religious leaders are being blinded by the light while the light is opening up the eyes of the man who is blind. Let's keep on reading. If these religious authorities are to maintain their view that Jesus is a sinner, They really have no choice to go over the facts again. And as they go over the facts again, the reason why they're doing it is not because they don't understand it, but like an interrogation, you go over the facts over and over and over again and hope that you would cause them to trip up and say the wrong thing or say some inconsistency so you can catch them. So they go over again. Look at verse 26. He says, then they asked them, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You are that man's disciples, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he is from. This is an amazing thing, the man told him. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. And throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. These religious leaders were so outraged by the perceived ignorant talk of the healed man that they were unwilling to listen to the facts or even consider the theological implications. Like in their mind, they were so convinced that at best Jesus was either a deceiver or at worst he is a dangerous sinner. But because they were so blinded by the truth, they were unwilling to see that one of the signs of the Messiah is that he would open up the eyes of the blind. Like think about this here. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist he gets arrested. And in his arrest, he now struggles with doubt. The doubt like, is Jesus truly the Messiah? So he decides to get his disciples and go ask Jesus. And they go to Jesus and they say, like, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we expect somebody else? In other words, what they're saying is like, Jesus, are you the Messiah that we've been waiting to come? The Messiah that John the Baptist said that you are? Was it somebody else? But I love how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't say, yes, I am. 
But rather he says, hey, I want you to go and tell this to John. That the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking, the eyes of the blind are seeing, and the dead are being raised. In that statement, what is he saying? He's saying he is the Messiah because all of these things were signs that the Messiah was coming. Because when the Messiah was coming, he is beginning to undo all that evil has done. He has begun his restoration work. Even the prophets, even we read in our call to worship in Psalm 146 where it says the eyes of the blind will see. Uh, We read in Isaiah 35, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. So they should have known that these miracles are signs of the Messiah, but yet because they were so blinded, they were unwilling to believe. And in a sense, what they did is they cast this, they excommunicate this man from the synagogue. And again, let's zoom out what's John showing us. John is trying to show us the division between children of the light and children of darkness. The religious leaders are being blinded by the light, while the man who was born blind His sight is being revealed by that very same light. As this man was casted out, look at what Jesus does and the initiative that Jesus takes. Verse 35 says this, Jesus heard they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, what we have to understand, being casted out of the synagogue, being excommunicated from the synagogue doesn't mean, just like in our culture, being thrown out of church. Because when you're thrown out of church, where do you go? Just go to another church. But in this culture, to be excommunicated from the local synagogue means to be excommunicated from the community because their very community revolved around religion. What was, the, what was his parents unwilling to do? They were unwilling to proclaim the truth. Why? Because they did not want to be excommunicated. They were afraid of being kicked out. So they deferred to their son. And for their son to be kicked out is, in a sense, to be kicked out of their community. Even now, you can think the relationship between the parents and the son. They can't risk continuing their relationship with their son because what would happen to them? They would get kicked out themselves. So here's this man who was kicked out, outcasted by his very own community. And what does Jesus do? Jesus finds him. And I don't know if John was thinking about this verse when he was writing the story, but Psalm 27 verse 10 just gives us this beautiful picture. Psalm 27 verse 10 says this, Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord cares for me. When some of your translations says, The Lord will receive me. And what a beautiful picture here. As this man is casted out from his community, abandoned by his father and mother. And when Jesus finds him, 
what's happening. The Lord is receiving him. The Lord is caring for him. And the healed man who had never seen Jesus, and the last time he met Jesus is when Jesus sent him to go wash. So he has no idea how Jesus looks. Jesus comes to him and finds him and asks him this question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, what he means by the question, he's not saying, do you believe the Son of Man exists? Do you believe the Son of Man is going to come? But rather what he is saying is, do you trust in the Son of Man? Do you put your trust in him where you will submit to him, where you will follow him in joyful obedience? And look at how the man responds in verse 36. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. The man now has seen the Son of Man and believes. And what's happening is the physical conversion that this man experienced of his eyes being opened up paled in comparison to the spiritual conversion that has taken place in this moment where he entrusted himself to the Son of Man. The healed man believed and he worshipped. And now not only was his body healed, but now also his soul. We're almost done, but now we get to the fun part. Again, what has John been showing us? Look at where this man that was healed, look at how his understanding of the Lord is progressing. He doesn't really know where Jesus is from, but he knows he's possibly not a sinner. He must be a prophet. He must be from God. He doesn't know all the details about him. All that he does know is that Jesus was the one who opened up his eyes. And when he is kicked out by his own people, Jesus receives him and cares for him and says, Do you entrust yourself to the Son of Man? And he says, Who is he so I may believe? And he sees Jesus with his very own eyes and he believes and worships. In other words, what's happening is his eyes have been opened, but now he's seeing more and more clearly as the story is progressing. And what's happening to the religious leaders? Their eyes are closed more and more as the story is progressing as they are filled with a spiritual midst and it is in this part of the text Jesus now makes a statement and summarizes all that has taken place in the significance of the story and I guarantee you some of them you might not like these verses but these are the words of Jesus that we have to deal with, and I'm going to try to deal with it as briefly and as best as possible. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, 
you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Okay, what does this mean? <laughs> You're almost thinking like Jesus is flip-flopping things. So, so, so what's going on here? Again, I think what Jesus is doing is he's talking to this man. Again, this man just experienced something traumatic. His eyes are open, but as his eyes are being open, he's ex- being excommunicated from his own community. He's receiving the Lord, or the Lord is receiving him. And so what Jesus really is doing as he's talking to this man, he's kind of summarizing and explaining everything that has taken place with his eyes being open and even the interaction that he's had with these religious leaders. Now, let's look at verse 39 here in in part and, and read it again. Jesus said this, I came into this world for judgment. Now, if you think about this, you almost think like, doesn't that contradict the Bible? Because what does John 3, 17 says? I did not come into the world to do what? To condemn the world, but to save the world. And now Jesus is saying, for judgment I came into this world. So the question is, okay, well, what does Jesus mean? And real quick here, Jesus' point is not that the very purpose of his coming was to condemn the world, nor even simply to divide humanity. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. However, and this is the difficult part that we need to understand, saving some entails condemning others. I know this is hard for us to understand because we would like to believe that Jesus came to save all. The reason why we cannot say Jesus came to save all because we're all saved? No. All were not saved. And if all were not saved and we say that Jesus came to save all, that means he failed in his mission. But that was not Jesus' mission. Jesus' mission was not to save all. He didn't save Judas. He didn't save some of these religious leaders, but he certainly did come to save, and he came to save some, and as he came to save some, that also entails condemning others, because even John 3, 18 talks about we already stand condemned, and as some are already condemned. That entails the judgment that Jesus came to do. But look at the second part of verse 39. The second part of verse 39 really is this purpose statement. Jesus says, Those who do not see may see, And those who see may become blind. So in other words, verse 39 says this, I came into this world for judgment and order. In other words, my purpose is that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Again, what does Jesus mean? The blind, who are the blind? The blind are those who are in spiritual darkness, are those who are lost, are those who know they cannot see. 
And what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to open up their eyes. But those who see, or maybe a better way of saying it, those who think they can see, who puts all their confidence in themselves, and obeying the law, they reject the light when the light comes. Why? Because they don't see any need for the light. Because they are in a sense saying, what do you mean I can see? My eyes are open. And what Jesus says, for those who say they can see and who think they can see, what will happen to them? They will be blind. In other words, what's happening is the light of the world that is entering into the darkness is opening up the eyes of the blind and shutting the eyes that can see. As it's revealing, giving sight to the man born blind who knew he could not see. It is blinding the religious leaders who thought they could see. And then we we get to verse 40. As we see that some of the Pharisees overheard the conversation. And in their self-centeredness, they go to Jesus and say, We aren't blind too, are we? And what does Jesus say? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. In other words, what he means by that is if you recognized your blindness, you wouldn't have sin. In other words, words, what does Jesus do? When you recognize you are blind and you trust him to take care of your sins, what did Jesus do? He who knew no sin became sin and took on our sin and removed our sin. And then he gave us his righteousness for our unrighteousness. That's why he says, if you were blind... You wouldn't have sinned because your sin would have been removed. But now, because you can see, your sin will remain. In other words, because you are constantly putting hope in yourself and you see no need for me, the light of the world, and your sin that needs to be removed, you will continue to remain in your sin. So to wrap it up, we're almost done. I think there are two truths, corresponding truths that we can learn from this passage. The first truth is this, if you're taking notes. Humility and open acknowledgement of spiritual blindness are the characteristics of the person who receives spiritual sight. Humility and open acknowledgement of spiritual blindness is the characteristics of a person who receives spiritual sight. And this is what Jesus meant in verse 39 and 41. In order that those who do not see will see, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. In other words, there is a sense of humility, a sense of open acknowledgement that I am blind. I need my eyes to be opened. Those are the characteristics of a person whose eyes will be opened. But now the other side is also true. Pride and a refusal to acknowledge spiritual blindness are the characteristics of the person who remains blind. 
And this is what Jesus meant in verse 39 and 41. Those who do see will become blind. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Stuck in pride, they're blinded by the light. When it comes to sharing the gospel, I think one of the hardest truths to relate to people is not that Jesus comes from God or that he is God, but I think the hardest truth to relate to people is the reality that you are blind and dead in your sins. This is what the religious leader struggled with. What do you mean we're blind? What do you mean we're dead in our sins? We have the law. We have our performance. We have our, our religious structure. Have you seen me? I'm not like so-and-so. I'm way better. And here's the reality. Not only are we blind, but as, 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 as Paul David Tripp says, we are not only blind, but we are blind to our blindness. We're so blind that we don't even know that we are blind. And this was the religious leaders. And I know every time we, we read the story, none of us are the religious leaders in the story. But the reality of what John is trying to show us in compassion, he's writing to his audience, to these Jews, to look to Jesus because he's showing them, look at the one whose eyes are being opened up and they're seeing clearly and clearly. They're responding in humility and open acknowledgement and the religious leaders are being blinded by this mist of pride. In other words, stop continuing in your pride and humble yourself before the Lord. It is only then can your eyes be opened up. And so his invitation for us in the story is to come and believe in him. But it starts in humility and open acknowledgement of saying, I am blind. I am dead in my sins. I need a Savior. So come and believe in Him so that you will have life. And so as that invitation is, is given by John in his story for us this morning, there's also wonderful truths for us. But like, like think about this as believers. Think about the great joy that we were blind, but now we can see. Our eyes have been opened. We were poor spiritual beggars, and the Lord opened up our eyes. We can rejoice in that fact, and it also gives us hope, because what can we do? We can pray for our loved ones. We can pray for our children and for our family members, for our co-workers and for our neighbors who are blind, and they're blind to their blindness, and we can ask the Lord and plead for the, with the Lord to open up their eyes, because what kind of God do we serve? We serve a God who opens up the eyes of the blind. And so we can in confidence enter into his presence and in confidence proclaim the gospel believing that this is the God that opens up the eyes of the blind because I was one of them. And you can be one of them too. And so here's the invitation. Here's the question. 
Like, uh, I want you to be seriously thinking about this question and not just assuming the answer. But have you responded to Christ in humility and openly acknowledged your spiritual blindness? Like, this is a very important question. Are you trusting him to save you? Or are you trusting yourself to save yourself? Are you responding in humility? Or are you continuing in pride? One of the truths the Lord is teaching me is that the gospel is so profound that it demands a response. But you know what is very dangerous? What is very dangerous is not sitting under the gospel. What's dangerous is not responding to the gospel. Because when you do not respond to the gospel, your heart is being hardened. There's no neutrality to the gospel. It's either accepting it or rejecting it. It's either responding in humility that leads to repentance or responding in pride that leads to rejection. And I want to warn you, and I do it not because I'm judgmental, I'm doing it out of love for you. If you are sitting week in and week out under the preaching of the word and the proclamation of the gospel, and your response is indifferent, maybe later, and you're not taking it serious, that is a dangerous game that you are playing. It is a hardening of heart. So what I want to do is just give you a moment just to respond. Ask the Lord to open up your eyes. Whatever pride that you're clinging to, that the Lord would humble you so that you may see the reality of your condition. And then we'll get to sit at the table. Holy Spirit, can you confront us in our pride? Can you confront all of our idols that we're clinging to? Can you expose our blindness? And can you humble us Can you help us to respond in humility and open acknowledgement that we are blind? Can you help us to see? Can you open up our eyes? The good news about this morning, for some of you it might be crushing, 
But the good news is the Lord knows where you are. And he meets you where you are in life. He's not telling you that you need to do better, that you need to try harder. He's actually telling you the opposite. He's telling you to surrender, to stop what you're doing, to look to him, to trust him. And in that invitation, he gives you life. And so if that's you this morning, that you've been blinded and you've been prideful, And the Lord is revealing to you that you are blind. Can you respond to the gospel in humility? Can you surrender your life? And in it you are promised abundant life. As we get ready to sit at the table, again, this table reminds us of who Jesus is and what he's done. Like this table reminds us that we were once blind. We were once dead in our sins. We were once enemies of God. And we come and we're invited to sit at the table as children because of what Jesus Christ has done. We're not at this table because we're good. We're at this table because he was good on our behalf. And we've trusted him. And we look to him. And what that does not mean is that we are perfect. But what that does mean is that in our imperfections and in our struggles, and even at times in our sins and our doubts, we take our eyes off of ourselves and we look to him, and we trust him. And the table is only just a visible, physical reminder that you can see and taste and even smell and hear. This table doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. But it provides you wonderful assurance in your struggle of life to look to Christ, to trust in Christ. Remember who you were. You were once blind, but now you can see what an amazing grace the Father has lavished on us. The Son has extended to us. He who knew no sin became sin and took all of our sins upon himself and died in our place. And so when we receive these elements and when we eat these elements, when we eat the body and we drink the blood, we are reminded of who Christ is and what he's done for us. We trust him and we no longer trust ourselves. But there is a warning when it comes to this table. But if you're not in Christ, if you've not humbled yourself before the Lord, if you've not trusted him as your Lord and Savior, then don't participate because this does not mean anything. You're actually eating and drinking judgment upon yourselves. It is a wonderful privilege, but it's also a sacred privilege. May we keep the table sacred as we look to Christ 
and trust in him. And so as we distribute these elements, like use this time to remind yourself of Christ, the assurance you have in Christ, what he's accomplished for you and on your behalf, how he's opened up your eyes, how he has saved you from sin, how he has set you free, the new identity he has given you as you're constantly surrendering and in humility receiving. Let's meditate on these truths and let's go ahead and distribute these elements. What a wonderful privilege we have in Jesus Christ. When we were abandoned and when we were, when we were casted out, when we were enslaved by sin, the Lord initiated and came to us, died for us, received us, and promised to care for us. And by eating these elements and drinking these elements, we're reminded of this wonderful truth and how he accomplished it. His body that was given to us, eat it in remembrance of him. His blood that was shed for us, the new covenant we have in him, drink it in remembrance of him. Can you just take time right now and just thank the Lord and praise him? Thank the Lord for the wonderful salvation he's accomplished for you. For the mercy and grace that he's lavished on you. And the assurance that he has given you. He has opened up your eyes for you to see the truth. He has set you free. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, can you help us to trust you? Can you help us to cling to you? Can you help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith? Can you help us to run this race with endurance, fixing our eyes on you, Lord Jesus? And help us to walk in humility and help us to respond in humility. Remove the pride in our hearts. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship our King?